0: Do you guys remember the very first time you visited Hollywood? Why are you laughing? <laughs> That's often how it is. And by Hollywood, I, I don't mean Hollywood. I don't mean, like, I don't mean like Gower and Fountain. I mean like Hollywood and Vine kind of Hollywood. You know, the Walk of Fame and all that kind of stuff. It was not very impressive, was it? And have you ever had friends or family come visit? LA, and they, they're like, hey, you know, I want to go see, you know, the Walk of Fame, take me to Hollywood Boulevard, I want to see, you know, all the stuff, and of course, you try to persuade them that that was a really bad idea, <laughs> because you know what they're going to find, and instead of the, the glitz and the glam that they were expecting, they find that it's just nasty, and it smells like urine, <laughs> not exactly what they expected at all. And there, in, you know, especially in that stretch, I just hate going up there. But there are too many people. None of them are celebrities that your family and friends wanted to see. There's not enough parking, and it kind of makes you want to never go back, which is why every time your friends and family visit, you're like, no, 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 no we don't need to go up there. Plus, it takes an hour and a half to get there from the west side. But I use that unpleasant example of, of Hollywood Boulevard because I think we can all relate to it. And it's just one way to illustrate something that is rather common in the human experience. What we imagine or expect is often not how things really are. Our perception of things doesn't always match up with reality. And after taking a closer look, we're not always as interested as we used to be in that particular thing. Jesus was very very aware of that dynamic. He was very aware of the the assumptions of the people, the beliefs of the people, the thoughts of the people, the the way that they regarded things. He was aware of their traditions, which informed their thoughts and their beliefs. He was very aware of this, and he was not interested in the whole bait-and-switch thing. He was not interested in dressing up what it meant to follow him. He wanted people to know straight up what he was about what he was about, and what it meant to follow him. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Just want to give you an idea of what's been going on as, as we lead up to our text here. Jesus and his 12 disciples have been going around. They've been performing miracles and healings and all kinds of crazy stuff is going on. And even King Herod starts to pay attention. And Jesus has just fed five, a crowd of 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. Just five loaves of bread and two fish, and Jesus goes ahead and he feeds a crowd of 5,000. Pretty impressive. But the fact that he was even feeding 5,000 people shows the kinds of crowds that he was attracting. Jesus' ministry was not undercover. It wasn't subtle. Uh, he, people were taking notice. It was creating a buzz, And Jesus, at one point, he asks his disciples about those crowds. He says, who do the crowds say that I am? And then he directed the same question to his disciples, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, one of his disciples, who always had something to say, confidently proclaimed, you are the Christ. And then Jesus goes on to tell them that the day is coming that he would be arrested and killed. And it didn't really go along with his growing popularity, how he could end up being arrested and killed. Yet Jesus is saying, and he's predicting to his followers, that's indeed what's going to happen. And it's in this context that he now speaks about what it means to really follow him as the Christ. And so we we'll look in our text, starting at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone... Would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Or another translation says, forfeits or loses his soul. Actually, not another translation, the book of Matthew says that. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. These are remarkable statements. There's some crazy stuff that he's saying here. And not only are these statements counterintuitive, right? It just goes against our any logic. Deny yourself. Lose your life to save it. If you want to save it, you're going to lose it. They're counterintuitive, but they're also countercultural. And they're rather bizarre. And they're almost nonsensical. But they're also confrontational as they confront, as they confront false views that we often have that do not line up with Jesus. So this morning, we're going to be specific, specifically looking at how he confronts three particular false views. The first false view he confronts, and the one that we're going to spend the majority of our time on is the false view that we often have of ourselves, where he says in verse 23, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. That, that goes against how we view ourselves. If, if, if I'm an important person, I've got things to offer. I've got stuff going on that's how we that's how we typically think of ourselves and the words of Jesus here go contrary to that and he's saying this is what I want you to do if you're going to follow me i need you to deny yourself so what does it mean to deny ourselves we often use this terminology when we, we, when we th- think of dis- denying ourselves some form of pleasure of, of having or experiencing something. We say, oh, I'm going to deny myself, and I'm not going to have that you know, second piece of chocolate cake or, or whatever it might be. That's, how we typically th- that's what we typically think when we, when we think about what it means to deny ourselves. We think of the things that we're going to sort of give up or fast from. We, we think of it as denying ourselves some sort of pleasure of some sort, some sort of indulgence. So it might be like goofy things like Netflix or video games or alcohol or I'm going to give up ice cream for a while or I'm going to give up social media. And you know what's really crazy about that is every single time someone gives up social media, they tell you first on social media they're going to give up social media. And it could be viewed as a form of asceticism where we we practice an extreme form of of self-discipline and avoid all forms of indulgence in order to to prove um, our devotion to something. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about denying ourselves of pleasure or of some form of indulgence. What he's he's talking about is the process by which we humbly submit our will to God to fulfill his will, not our own. It's to go through life repeating the words that Jesus said the night before he died. Remember what he said? When he was praying in the garden he said to God, to, to, to the Father, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is modeling that for us. That's what it means to deny our, ourselves, to deny our will and to submit to God's. And it's what millions of people have prayed for centuries when they recite the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're very familiar with these concepts. We're very familiar with these phrases. A vast majority of us could probably recite the Lord's Prayer, including that line. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And even that statement is an expression of, I prefer your will over mine. I submit my will to yours. So your will is my greatest desire. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But... It doesn't always reflect our hearts, right? We say it, we recite it, but it's not always reflective of where we're really at when push comes to shove. This whole idea of dying to ourselves and submitting our will to his it was is something that was I was powerfully reminded of this week. Uh, I went to see um, a a new film called Emmanuel. And a number of you saw it as well. I know that because I saw you in the theater. But wasn't that, for those that saw it, or at least those that are familiar with the story, wasn't that insane? I don't mean the movie. I mean the message. This film tells the story of how the family members of those that were lost in the charleston church shooting actually forgave the shooter powerful powerful despite their own experience despite their own pain despite what they were going through they submitted as believers in jesus as followers of jesus they submitted their will to his knowing what the father's will was for them in that moment and the father's heart towards the shooter and we are told in scripture to love our enemies and to forgive our enemies. And at the first opportunity, they had to do that. As they addressed the shooter in the court, it came out of one person's mouth. I forgive you. And one person even took the opportunity to share the gospel, to share God's heart with the shooter, and called him to repent and to turn to Jesus what would your will have been in that moment? For many of us, it may not have been that. And everybody would have understood because of that horrible tragedy and what had happened. But they, in that moment, their will, they were dying to. They were submitting their will to God's. Not what I want, not what I think, but I submit that, and they reflected the heart of God. They submitted their will to him. To deny ourselves is to deny any claim to run our own lives. And we can make all kinds of claims that we have the right to do this, and that we have the right to be that, or to do that. And even in this shooting, I have the right to be angry, I have the right to feel pain. And, and yes, all that is true. But even as this family demonstrated as it was several family members, not all of them honestly, but several of the the family members of those that were lost expressed their desire to forgive. But we need to, to, to deny ourselves is to deny our rights to run our own lives, to deny that we own ourselves. Because if we're going to follow Jesus, we're not in charge. That's the bottom line. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're not in charge. We're not the boss of us. Even when you think about it, practically speaking, to follow Jesus, who's the one leading? Right? And we use this term, and we are familiar in the church with this concept of following Jesus, and we speak of it that way, But we talk about following Jesus and we leave Jesus in the dust. And we do our own thing and we talk about by using these Christian terms and these church terms of following Jesus, yet there's no evidence at all that we are following him. That's often what happens. And we need to stop for a second, pay attention, turn around, and take notice that we're not following anyone but ourselves, our own desires our own wisdom. So to follow Jesus is very literally, we should have that picture in our minds, to follow him. As he leads us, we follow along. That's what it means to deny ourselves. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Apostle Paul plainly states in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And it all starts as we place our faith in Jesus and enter into a life of servitude to him. And it brings an end to our independence. It brings an end to our self-sufficiency. It brings an end to our self-centeredness. And it's where we make him the true Lord of our lives. Isaac had some, Pastor Isaac had some, some words to that effect last week. And the, the week before that, we talked about the, the contrast between Jesus being the Lord and the Lamb. But the one thing that we as humans value and protect, or or one of the things, we value and protect this, and we seek to preserve our autonomy and the right to self-determination. So much of what we see going on in our culture is a collision of perceived rights. I don't want to, like, drop hints about the various hot topics and all that, but, like, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, it's across the spectrum. There's so many things we we have these rights, and we're fighting for these rights. And all it is, and it's not necessarily that we that we don't have rights, but the way we fight for them just highlights and reveals like these are the things that we value most. And for some of us, it's taken on the form of idolatry in our lives. That's even why politics gets so confused with following Jesus. They're not the same thing. And does. Does following Jesus inform our political views? Absolutely, yeah, sure. But they're not the same thing. One has to inform the other. But autonomy, self-determination, that's what we're all about. And Jesus is saying, no. And he speaks to the heart of that. He continues on in verse 23, expanding on this idea further by saying that his true followers should, should take up their cross Daily. Now, he's obviously being figurative here. And he's not suggesting that we literally should be carrying crosses around the place. But I actually once served at a church where a dude showed up one Sunday carrying a massive cross. And he asked me, hey, where should I park this thing? I'm serious. He's like, where can I put this while I sit in the service? But Jesus wasn't saying he literally expected us to carry crosses around. He was speaking figuratively, but he was speaking of something that was still very real at the, same, at the same time. And it's become sort of a common figure of speech to talk about difficult things as the crosses that we bear, right? Oh, that's my cross to bear. I got a parking ticket. That's my cross to bear. In L.A., that's common. It might be things like where we work. It might be the boss we have to work with, paying rent in Los Angeles. It might be your mother-in-law. I don't know. But I I can only say that because my mother-in-law lives in another country, and um, so I can get away with that. But she's a very nice person. And it was actually her birthday yesterday, and I love her very much. Claire Saint-Arnaud, that's her name. She's French. But all kidding aside, because I am kidding, we might even refer to a serious illness we're suffering from as our cross to bear. Like, it's, it's, it's the goofy stuff, but then it's also the serious stuff. And we kind of view it as, like, oh, this is the cross I have to bear. And while we are suffering in that moment, and while we're going through difficult things legitimately, that's actually not what Jesus was talking about. But even Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it as a problem that causes trouble or worry for someone over a long period of time. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. His hearers would have understood the reference that Jesus is making. They were under Roman rule. And it was the Roman practice, uh, the, as far as their form of capital punishment, was crucifixion. So when Jesus is telling his followers, within this context where crucifixion was common, to take up their cross, they knew what he was referring to because of this custom. So in Jesus, with Jesus telling them to take up their cross... He's just expounding on this whole concept of, of self-denial and death to self and, and to describe what it means to follow him. And you might say this, you know, take up my cross, like really following Jesus, and, that, and that's what we're talking about. And that, that seems a little extreme. Well, I, I guess it's a little extreme, but only because we often make Christianity to be what we want it to be. We sort of create a form of Christianity, and something like that, a statement like that, what Jesus says is fundamentally at the core of what it means to follow me. We go, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a little extreme. Extreme compared to what? Only our standards of what it means to follow Jesus. Right? Man, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to hear about that. We have our own idea. I figured it out. Like, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And I can live my life this way and sort of attach it somehow to Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. (laughs) Well, says who? Says you? Nope. That's not how it works. Now, I'm not saying that I watched The Bachelorette, but she recently made headlines for doing just that for making christianity out to be something that she wanted it to be and i only know this because someone i follow on twitter commented or liked a tweet that had a story or a link to the headline or whatever like so i wasn't like following the bachelor or and twitter's algorithm shows you what your fo- or the people you follow are liking or tweeting or whatever okay so like yeah so like i'm not like a fan of the bachelor tv show or anything you know, I hope, that, um, I hope that Hannah Brown, who's 24 from Alabama, finds love one day. But I don't really know much about the show. And I only clicked on the link for, like, theological research. But she was quoted as saying, get this, I can do whatever. I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. Isn't that crazy? It would almost be funny if it wasn't so sad. I can do whatever. I sin daily, and Jesus still loves me. And you know what else? We make light of it a little bit, but I mean, no, I don't intend to mock because we are all that person at some point. And we think, especially as we are exposed to Jesus and exposed to Christianity, we we start to think that, man, Jesus loves me so much, and he died for my sins. Cool. I really appreciate that. Well, I guess I'm in now. He's forgiven me. And he's, the pastor said, He's forgiven my sins, past, present, and future. But then we don't follow Him from that point forward. And we sort of rely on His forgiveness and we, we rely on His grace. And that's an unfortunate perspective that we have. But sadly, that's what Christian, Christianity is often reduced to for so many. And it does not reflect Jesus' words to deny yourself to die to your own will, to submit to his will, to take up your cross and to follow him. We so often misunderstand Christ's call. Jesus doesn't simply call us to believe that that he existed or to believe that he can save us. He calls on us to commit our whole lives to him, to trust in him alone for our salvation and then to follow him as his disciples. Sometimes what we believe in is not what Jesus asked us to believe in. Notice here in verse 23, it says something that I want to point out and highlight here. It says that we are to take up our cross daily. Take it up daily. And and in other words, what's being said here is Keep on denying yourself. Keep on taking up your cross. Keep on following me. Will we listen? Will we take heed? To be a follower of Jesus is not a single decision made in a moment. It is a prescription for a lifetime. To be repeated over and over again, day in and day out. If you view yourself as a follower of Jesus, and the reason why you view yourself as a follower of Jesus is because you look back at an event, you're not looking at it properly. If you you view yourself as a follower of Jesus, and you can't look at today, and the decisions you made today, and the decisions you intend to make tomorrow... You might not be a follower of Jesus. It almost reminds me of that punchline from Foxworthy or whatever. You might not be a follower of Jesus. I don't know. I can't mimic him. (laughs) But he goes on in verse 24. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. More crazy words, more craziness from Jesus. There are two attitudes that we can have towards life. You can only have one or the other, and each one will bring its own results. The first one is to save your life now, cling to it, hang on to it, clutch it, grab it, take care of yourself, trust yourself. See that in every situation, your first concern, your first and foremost concern is what's in it for you and how your needs will be met and how you will find satisfaction and fulfillment from that in the way that you are clinging to your life. The second attitude you can have is to lose your life now. Submit your will to Jesus. Become totally dependent upon him. Make him the Lord of your life and discover the purpose and meaning he intends for your life. Not the purpose and meaning you want, but the purpose and meaning he intends for your life. Those are your two options. And there are only two results that can follow those two options. If you do the former, if you choose to, if you decide, I'm going to save my life, and you cling to it and get all you can for yourself, then without a doubt, Jesus is saying, pay attention, you're going to lose it. And you will find that you have everything you want, but not anything, but you will find that you have everything you want, but not want anything that you have. Think about that. You'll have everything you want, but you won't want anything that you have. And you will find that all of the life you tried to grasp has slipped through your fingers because it lacks the substance you thought it had. If you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. And you essentially, you'll be left with nothing. You'll be dissatisfied, you'll be hollow, and you'll be empty. But if you do the latter, if you choose to lose your life, giving yourself away for the cause of Christ, giving up your right to yourself, taking up your cross and following him, you will not waste your life, you will save it. And we we think about that sometimes, like, man, like, I like the life I have right now, and you want me to give my life to Jesus? What a waste. Some of us have felt that at times. I did before I came to Christ in my early 20s. I'm like, nope. Oh, I get it. This old gospel thing, and Jesus and stuff. Uh-huh, I get it. I get it. But nope, no thanks. What a waste. And Jesus is saying, nope, you got it backwards. You're not going to waste your life. You're going to find it. And you'll find contentment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and a, true, a new true identity and real life as he intended it. The whole idea of connecting your life to a cause you believe in is, is something that is not uncommon, right? We can all relate to that to some degree. We see it all around us. People um, have the capacity to be compassionate, to, de- to desire to do good, to serve other people. And so they connect their lives to a cause they believe in, uh, something that they consider worthwhile, and they, they give their lives towards that thing. But Jesus is helping us understand here that if we give our lives for a cause other than Jesus, we gain nothing. Notice what he says in verse 24, whoever loses his life for my sake will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will lose it. So it's not just about giving away your life and doing good. You could sell all that you could have. You could move to a country to help people that are not as well off as you, and and you could live in poverty and make those kinds of sacrifices in order to serve other people. But if you're not doing it for the sake of Jesus, it's for the sake of Jesus that we are to give away our lives. So these are hard words to hear from Jesus. Because he confronts this false view of ourselves, that we matter to the degree that we want to promote ourselves. So he confronts this false view by saying, die to yourself. Take up your cross daily. And the next thing we see him confronting is a false view of success, something that LA knows a little bit about. This whole town spins on this idea of what success is. And we value success, wealth, fame, achievement. And these things have easily reached a level of idolatry in our culture. And we think the more we can accumulate, achieve, and accomplish, the more successful that we are. But Jesus flips that upside down in verse 25, where he says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And as I mentioned earlier, a parallel passage in the book of Matthew talks about forfeiting his soul. To gain the whole world, that would be a thing. That would be quite an accomplishment. But there is literally nothing you can seek, gain, acquire, achieve, or accomplish in this temporal world that is worth losing your eternal soul over. There's nothing in this world, not even the world itself, that is worth gathering to ourselves, that is worth losing our eternal soul over. It's just not worth it. It's not a fair exchange. Because temporal things cannot meet spiritual needs. And your greatest need is not a new car, is not a new house, is not your perception of success or status. That is not your greatest need. It may be a great desire of yours, but it is not your greatest need. And we try to fill our greatest need with temporal things, and temporal things cannot meet spiritual needs. C.S. Lewis said that we have desires that nothing in this world can satisfy because we were made for another world. We have desires that nothing in this world can satisfy because we were made for another world. So Jesus confronts this false view of ourselves. He confronts this false view of success. And now the third false view that we see him confronting is a false view of our connection to him. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me, and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. More brutality in Jesus' words here. Just, this is so harsh. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you, basically. And he's speaking to those that would claim a connection to him without actually following him. And he's saying this is actually no connection at all. But it's still a very pervasive view that we can be Christians without actually being followers of Jesus. I referenced it earlier. We claim the category of Christian, but there's nothing in our lives to back up the claim that we are followers of Jesus, probably because we're not. And so Christians, you, me, all of us, and believe me, I have this week as I've been preparing for this. It's scary We've got to take inventory and figure this out. We can get so lazy when we're not actively following Jesus. And if it's not laziness, sometimes it's a lack of vigilance where we're just not paying attention, a lack of intentionality. Jesus calls us to follow him and we need to actually do that. So what Jesus is addressing here, this idea that there would be those who would be ashamed of him. He's addressing a settled way of life that that expresses, uh, that has this outward expression of, of conformity to the Christian faith, but inwardly adopts and follows and conforms to the values of the world. That's what he's confronting. And to be ashamed of Christ is to deny any link with him and is the opposite of acknowledging him as one's Lord. This is like, no, we're ashamed. We're like, no, 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 because when it's convenient, that's what we do, right? If we're not actually following Jesus, we would own up to it, but there's times where we find ourselves in situations and circumstances where we're like, oh, maybe not so much. Not right now, because this is a hostile environment, or what will this person say, or what will this person think, or I already know what they think about religion or Jesus, and they've made stupid cracks at me in the past, so I'm not going to bring it up right now. And I'm not saying that we should be obnoxious witnesses for Jesus. I'm not saying that. But we have to check our hearts. In what ways are we ashamed? Are we, are we truly following Jesus? Or are we denying a connection with him? Are we denying any link with him? So Jesus is being straight up with all of this stuff. And he's just saying, look, this, here, here's how it works. This is what's going on. If, you, if you're ashamed of me and deny a relationship with me, here's what's going on. I will agree with you. I already made a way to make a relationship possible between you and God by dying on the cross for your sins. But if you reject me, I'm not going to force myself on you. This gift I wanted to give you, of salvation, of reconciliation with God. If, if you're not down, that's cool. In the sense that it's your choice. If you choose separation from God, he's going to honor that. Isn't that scary? C.S. Lewis again. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, "Thy will be done." You know, as Jesus says these things, these are hard words. These are difficult words. When was the last time, if you're a follower of Jesus and a believer of Jesus, when was the last time that you even thought about this kind of stuff? I confess, I don't think about the significance. And the reality of these things, often enough, I need to be reminded of this. But these are hard words, and hard words are often hard to say to people. Hard words are hard to say to people. In part because we don't want to take them off, and we don't want to hurt them, or, or whatever. But Jesus doesn't let any fear of their response hold him back from sharing truth and proclaiming truth. Because the reality is, truth can be very confrontational. And not everyone's going to like it, but it doesn't stop Jesus from saying what needs to be said for their sake. Now, we need to be careful how we wield the truth and make sure that what we do with our actions doesn't violate what we say with our words. There's times where we can be right with our mouths and be so wrong and out of line in the way we go about it. And when we attack people with the truth, We have no standing in the truth because we're sinning against them in that moment. But even 1 Corinthians 13, which speaks very directly about love, has some interesting things to say about this. It's known as the love chapter because it says so much about love. And it says that one of the things that we should understand about love is that it rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. So that means to be truthful, which would include Confronting error is actually a loving thing to do. But if we take some guidance from the rest of the chapter, from 1 Corinthians 13, we we see also that it tells us that love is patient and love is kind. And so our stand for the truth must also be marked by those things. See, sometimes we think, you know, the loving thing to do is just to be kind and to be patient. That's the loving thing to do. Well, sure, yeah, yeah. Part of the loving thing to do. But there's sometimes where our, our perception of what is kind and what is patient comes at the cost of not proclaiming truth and not standing for truth. Love rejoices in the truth. Love is patient, love is kind, but it rejoices in the truth. Those two come together. I often think of how Jesus is described where he was full of grace and truth, and he was not so full of truth that he was not full of grace, and he was not so full of grace that he was not full of truth. He was equally both together, somehow in this weird divine way, the full embodiment of both grace and truth. And it's, The reason why it's loving to give people truth, the reason why it was loving for Jesus to even say these hard hard words is because it's unloving to give people false hope. Right? Some of you know some of what's going on with me physically and my daughter physically. And um, if we went to the doctor, and the doctor's like, hey, don't worry about it but it was something so much more serious. It's like, that's not helpful. That's not loving. Tell me the truth. And I've been on that side of the conversation before, where bad news was delivered, and the reality of that truth hit me like a ton of bricks. But in the moment, I was grateful that the truth was spoken because i wasn't being misled i wasn't being given false hope so in light of that if you are not following jesus and don't I, for the for the sake of this moment i would say let's not think in terms of whether we are a christian or not because that has to be defined and talked about in greater detail but in the way we, way I've already described what it means to follow Jesus, if you are not following Jesus, and I love you as your pastor, and I do, and if we love you as your church community, which we do, we appeal to you with the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he said, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And if you're visiting today, and if you don't know Jesus, and you don't know me because I'm not your pastor, and you don't know who we are because we're not your church community, our appeal to you is still the same be reconciled to God. But in order to do that, we first need to realize that we need to be reconciled. We need to be reconciled. Why do we need to be reconciled? Because sin has come into the world, and through that, we experience brokenness, and we see brokenness everywhere, and we make mistakes. When we talk about sin, people are like, I don't know about sin. But then at the same breath, we're like, oh, everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. It's just a recognition of our sin. It's just a recognition of our brokenness. Everywhere we see it, everything can be explained by brokenness. The the What the movie was about, the Charleston church shooting, and so many other things like that, it's explained by brokenness and sin. Sin has undoubtedly and and um, without a doubt, it, is, it has come into the world. And sin separates us from a holy God. God, who is 100% holy, cannot be in relationship with sin, because of his holiness. This is why we need to be reconciled to God. That's why we need to be reconciled to God, and there's only one way for us to be reconciled, and that's Jesus, who stepped into our brokenness. And as he stepped into our brokenness, he made a way for us to get out of the brokenness in a way that we could never get out of ourselves. You know, earlier we talked about the pursuit of success and fame and wealth and power and status and all those sorts of things. Those are often attempts to get out of the brokenness that we're in because we're trying to better our lives in some way. Like, I don't, I'm don't, i not satisfied with where I'm at, so I need to be successful. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at, so I need to, to gain status. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at, so I need to make more money. I need to get that job. I need to get into this relationship. I need this. I need that. But really the underlying issue is, we're not okay with the brokenness that we know that we are experiencing, whether we admit it or not. But Jesus makes a way out of that brokenness, and all we have to do is turn to him and to believe in him and to turn away. As we turn to him, we turn away from our life of sin, and it's in Jesus, as he extends to us, his forgiveness for our sins because he died on the cross for our sins. He took the penalty for our sins upon himself, which doesn't make any sense at all, yet he did it anyway. It's through that, that we can be reconciled to God and, be, and we can recover God's perfect design for us and we can pursue a relationship with him. We need to be reconciled and the only way to be reconciled is through Jesus because Jesus paid it all and he submitted. Yeah, you can clap. Go for that. Clap for Jesus. Jesus deserves a clap. Jesus deserves a clap. He deserves our very lives, right? That's what we're talking about. But the clap is acceptable. (laughs) Jesus sees that clap. But he paid it all. And he submitted. We talk about submitting our will. He submitted his will to death. He submitted to death for us. And we already talked about how he submitted to the Father's plan for him to do that very thing. And now he calls us to place our faith in him and to follow him. And let me just say this to you. Let me just say this. This. And I'll close with this. I'm probably way over time. I have no idea. Jesus is so worth it. He's worth it. Jesus is worth it. When he calls us to follow him, it's so worth giving up our lives to follow him. Believe me, you might not, but I'm going to say it anyway. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. And now we have the opportunity to contemplate that and choose will we follow him? Let's pray.